When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before I get into the episode, I want to give you a bit of a warning, because after all, we are talking about cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised, as some content is not suitable for young children. I have a complicated relationship with this account on Instagram that I follow called Nature is Metal, because I'll follow it, then unfollow it, then follow it again, because a lot of the videos and images on there are really disturbing. And it really just shines an interesting light on how the world is, how the wild world is. It is indeed metal, but it's hard to see sometimes. And there's a specific picture that came up on the account that almost made me unfollow, but instead I became curious. It was a picture of a bigger polar bear holding a younger polar bear's head in its mouth. And it was an example of cannibalism in the animal kingdom. And it happens quite often in the animal kingdom. But I really want to dive deep and learn more about why this happens, how often it happens, infanticide, all those things. So let's talk about it, shall we? Why, hello there, all of you curiously minded peeps. Welcome to another wonderful fact-filled episode of Little Curiosities. I'm Kendall Long, you know, that one taxidermy-loving chick from The Bachelor. And on that lovely rose-filled show, I was on a quest for love. But on this podcast, I'm on a whole different kind of quest, the quest for knowledge. On a past episode of Little Curiosities, you might remember that I talked all about people chomping down on other people, aka cannibalism. And if you haven't listened to it, I do highly recommend that you do. Though I am going to warn you, I do get into some gory details about cannibal killers, which I personally find fascinating. But you know what? I get it. Not everyone does. Needless to say, you've been warned. But anyway, that past episode on cannibalism made me think. Humans can't be the only species that makes a snack out of each other, right? Where are my animal cannibals at? If any of you are unlucky enough to follow the dreaded Instagram account, Nature is Metal, you'll know that the animal world is pretty dang unforgiving. It gets gnarly at times. Siblings eating siblings, moms eating babies, ladies eating lovers. It almost seems like everything goes when the belly starts rumbling. And with animals, cannibalism is kind of the norm. So I had to make an episode about cannibalism with animals because we can't let humans have all the fun. In fact, we should never let humans be cannibals. That's just bad. Straight to jail, I say. So this episode is a result of just that, learning about all things cannibal in the animal kingdom. And I do have to say, I tried to make this episode not as sad as my uh, human cannibal episode. And I do have some somewhat lighthearted stories in this episode, as lighthearted as cannibalism could be in the first place. But yes, during this episode, I'm going to fill your noggins with all kinds of finger-licking facts. From animals that level up just like Pokemon to munch on their own kind, to a cannibal ant colony discovered in an abandoned Soviet bunker. 
So you know your dinner table conversations are sure to be good enough to eat. So prep your ovens and sharpen your knives because today's episode is going to be dangerously delicious. Firstly, I want to give a shout out to an awesome book that's titled Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History by Bill Shutt. I got a lot of my information from this episode from within the pages of this book, and dare I say, it's a good read. I actually highly recommend it to anyone who wants to know more on the subject if this episode doesn't fill your cannibal curiosity enough. I mean, let's be honest. When it comes to the subject of cannibalism, are we ever fully satisfied? Are we ever fully satiated? I don't know if I ever will be. Like I mentioned earlier, cannibalism is a very real and common reality with many critters in the animal kingdom. In fact, BBC Wildlife Magazine reports that more than 1,500 species munch on their own kind. There are many reasons why a species may decide to eat its own, but the most common is by far in the form of infanticide, the intentional killing of infants or offspring. Ugh, I know, I'm starting off on an intense note. But honestly, that's just nature. Oftentimes, the young, vulnerable, and weak are cannibalized, and what is more vulnerable than a wee-wee baby? A parent will choose to eat its infant for a number of reasons. For instance, if one or two of the young are sick or weak, it's sayonara, baby. And although it's callous, there is a reason for this. It's mainly done so mommy and daddy can focus more on the healthy, thriving siblings that have a much better chance at surviving. Honestly, the wild is a tough place to survive even if you're fit and ready to go at birth. It's tragic, but a very real reality. Another situation where the young are at risk is during times where food and resources are scarce. Male polar bears have been observed resorting to making a meal out of one of their cubs when they're hungry enough. This theory is what's known as the predation hypothesis that suggests killing is done to obtain food. Another theory is the resource competition hypothesis. This form of infanticide removes potential competitors, thereby leaving more food for the killer and their offspring or future offspring. But wait, there's more. Unfortunately, if you thought I was done talking about infanticide, you're wrong, because another theory for infanticide is called sexual selection hypothesis. This theory is very common for new alpha males in various species who will kill young ones to remove any threat to the male's gene pool and prevents them from having to raise kids that aren't their own. This form of infanticide is especially true in the case of lion packs. When an old alpha is beaten by a rival male, the new leader will seek out and unalive all of the other male's cubs. This way, all of the females will become receptive to mating right away, and his genes will be spread, not the former males. Look, cannibalism with young ones isn't strictly a murderous activity. If an infant is sick, deformed, or born into conditions where the mother isn't able to produce milk or provide any food for their baby, the baby may not be able to survive. In this case, when the young one passes away from natural causes, the body can be a valuable source of nutrients for the parent especially if there isn't much nutrients and that's why the baby passed away to begin with. This is known as filial cannibalism. 
A lot of species engage in this practice from leopards to macaques and many fish species. Literally, I can't think of a fish species that doesn't participate in cannibalism. And look, I know I'm talking a lot about some not so good parenting skills, but you know what? There are some great parents out there in the wild, and especially this next animal. They should win a trophy for the best mother in the animal kingdom, honestly because this mama would give literally anything to make sure her children were fed, even the shirt off her own back, or should I say, the skin off her own body. The mother I'm speaking of is a type of legless amphibian called the Sicilian. Not the Sicilian like the pizza, the Sicilian like the legless worm type snake thing. You know, that one. And yes, it does kind of look like a mix between a snake and an earthworm. And like the earthworm, they live underground in most rainforests around the world. There are two types of Sicilian species, the viviparous, that means they give birth to live young, and oviparous, meaning they lay eggs. And when it comes to lunchtime, both offer up their bodies on a silver platter for their babies, but in different ways. Now, when it comes to the egg-laying oviparous Sicilian, certain species of this variety feed their babies in a very unique way. When it was first discovered, in fact, it caught researchers by surprise. When studying these creatures, they noticed that juveniles of this species had a hankering for their mother's flesh and would attack her and chomp off bits of her skin with their specialized teeth, called fetal multicuspid teeth. Ouch. It may seem harsh, but this practice is called maternal dermatophagy, a reproductive behavior in which the young feed on a highly specialized outer layer of the mother's skin that is packed with lipids, pretty much like a baby Sicilian superfood. If you feel bad for this mama, don't worry. It doesn't hurt her at all. She actually grows this outer layer of skin specifically for her young ones to eat, and it grows back within two to three days ready to be devoured yet again, kind of like an everlasting gobstopper. And if you don't get the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory reference, then, uh, sorry. The mamas of the viviparous, aka live birth variety of this species, may have it better or worse depending on your viewpoint. For them, the feeding isn't like a corn on the cob, let's say. It's more like a eating the inside out, not the outside in, like a watermelon kind of thing. It's kind of hard to find a metaphor for this kind of thing, but you get the picture. And if you don't, it's about to become a lot more clear. Because while preggers nestled inside the mother Sicilian's uterus, her wiggly babies snack on the lining of her uterus with specialized teeth. Ugh. Again, they say the mother isn't hurt by this, but it kind of sounds like it's not comfy to me. But hey, it does help her wee ones, so, you know, she's doing what any mother would do, right? The babies of the Sicilians who feed this way get a boost of nutrition. Some show an increase in their body mass by 80% in just 20 days. And with results like that, if a baby is healthy, mother is healthy. Baby Sicilians may see their mother as a meal, but other animals see their siblings as the main course. Because when it comes to sibling rivalry, it can be a battle to the death. For instance, Sand tiger sharks are known to cannibalize each other before they are even born. This is called intrauterine cannibalism because it takes place in the uterus. It's also known as Adelphophagy, which literally translates to brother eating. 
And that's exactly what they're up to. <laughs> During pregnancy, there are often 20 or so embryos wiggling about in the mama shark do 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 baby shark na 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 My fiance was listening to me record that and he just said I had no rhythm. So I'm sorry if you had to suffer through that. I thought it was hilarious. What I find to be quite insane is that these little baby thin-headed cuties have already developed embryonic teeth. And they use those teeth to eat each other until only one remains. The guy who discovered this gruesome sibling rivalry was biologist Stuart Springer, who made the discovery when his hand got bitten by these embryonic teeth while poking around inside a mommy shark's uterus sizz. Ouch. And yes, I did say uterus is, though it's correctly pronounced uteri, because the mother has two uteri, and because of this, oftentimes two babies are birthed, because they couldn't get at each other to snack on. Not because they are merciful or just full. All that protein acquired while in the womb makes these young sharks strong from the get-go. So as soon as these twins are born, they skedaddle. You know, they're just ret to jet and already have a big leg up on life and some major predatory skills thanks to practicing on all of their sisters and brothers. Who needs a mama who would probably just try to eat them anyway? So they're better off going off on their own. It isn't just sharks that partake in sibling eating. The tadpoles of the spadefoot toad are also known to eat their kin, but rather than a womb, their battleground to crown the last sibling standing takes place in a shrinking pond or puddle, where these little frog babies reside. A puddle is already a small enough space to begin with, but if you add in a blazing sun and a hot summer day, that puddle's about to get a whole lot cozier and smaller, because the beating sun causes these little tadpoles' water lodgings to become more and more cramped. Because evaporation. I know we all took science class. We know what sun and water means. And that just so happens to be the trigger that turns these baby tadpoles into cannibalistic killers. Due to the pressure of their rapidly changing environment, the sibling tadpoles will cannibalize each other. It's a battle to the death. And the race is on to see who can outgrow the others and become an adult before their home dries up. The only ones that survive this situation are the ones who are able to eat enough protein to allow them to grow out of their vulnerable state quicker. They go on to sprout legs and hop off with a full belly and maybe the hopes of someday laying a cluster of cannibalistic babies of their own in a nearby shrinking pond. It may be a vicious cycle, but that's just totally how life is sometimes. Okay. No more puns for me. I'm done. But let's not just pick on the babies of the animal kingdom. Adults get eaten too, especially in the world of insects. And for these next few animal cannibal stories, it's not the mommies who have to worry about becoming a meal. It's the daddies. Because when it comes to spreading their genes, these daddies risk it for the biscuit. As in, the males are eaten up like biscuits by the females. These soon-to-be papas are mostly eaten up while they're, uh, making babies. This kind of cannibalism is called sexual cannibalism, the killing and consumption of a partner before, during, or after mating. Seriously, though, you have to be sorry for the guy who got eaten before he even got a chance to do the sexy dance. On the subject of copulation cannibalism, I know of two widowed insects that instantly come to mind for me, and probably to you too, the praying mantis and the black widow. 
For the praying mantis, males are gobbled up in about 13-28% to of sexual encounters, which surprised me because I always thought it would be a much more common thing given the reputation of the praying mantis man-eaters. But regardless, even though it's not every time, it's still a lot of the time. So much so that during mating season, male lovers make up about 63% of a female's diet. Talk about chivalrous. But recent evidence says that this isn't just to benefit the female's hunger. Her lover serving himself up as a meal has some major benefits for his future kiddos, too. A study published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B showed just that. In it, researchers fed crickets with radioactive amino acids that acted as a sort of nutrients tracker. These crickets were then fed to male praying mantis, and then the mood was set for a little mantis-on-mantis courtship. Half of the males were consumed by the females during or after copulation, and the other half, let's just say it was their lucky day. They were mercifully plucked from the female's grasp shortly after the deed was done, and allowed to live to see another sunrise. What researchers found in this study was pretty dang intriguing. For the females that ate their males, it seems like cannibalism did have some perks. For starters, females who ingested their mating partners produced more eggs than females who were denied their after-sexy-time snack. That and the radioactive tracing showed that the amino acids from the meal made up of her baby daddy, it didn't go solely to the mama. In fact, most of the nutrients were absorbed by her babies-to-be. So it seems the male mantis didn't die in vain. He was more of a sacrifice to ensure his fathered offspring could go on and thrive. The fate of the male is similar in the case of the black widow spider. The black beauties hiding in the dark corners of woodpiles in your nearest neighborhood. These spiders tend to be feared, understandably, because they are the most venomous spider in North America. But they aren't the most venomous in the world. That title goes to the Brazilian wandering spider. If you happen to cross paths with the Brazilian wandering spider, no need to worry because if you act fast enough when bitten, anti-venom will prevent death in most cases. Phew! Also, if you happen to share territory with a black widow spider and you happen to piss it off enough to get bitten, there is an anti-venom for their venom too, so no need to panic, just get yourself to an emergency room stat. Lady black widow spiders are quite large compared to their lovers. The female weighs 30 times what the male does. When it comes to post-copulation wrestling, it really isn't a fair match, I have to say. The equivalent of that size difference compared to us humans would be a male weighing around 200 pounds, that's 90.7 kilograms, and a female weighing 6,000 pounds, or over 2,721 kilograms. That's about as heavy as a white rhinoceros. The difference between males and females in a particular species is known as sexual dimorphism. I made a whole podcast episode about sexual dimorphism in the animal kingdom, so you should definitely check it out if you haven't already. It honestly is one of my favorite subjects to research because I find it so fascinating. Speaking of researching, while researching this episode, I was surprised to find that not all widow spiders eat their mates. In fact, the western black widow found in the United States doesn't eat their males at all. And if they do, it's because she mistakes him for food. To prevent getting mistaken for food, a male of this species will do a very specific dance with his legs and abdomen on the lady widow's web, creating the right vibrations that say, 
Hey, I'm a lover, not an entree. Anyway, out of all the widow spiders out there, there are only two widow spiders that have a tendency to eat their mates more so than not. The brown widow, which is an invasive species found in my home state of California, I would always come across those spiky white egg sacs from these spiders hanging on our trash cans. And when it was my turn to take out the trash to the curb for chores, I'd often have like a mini heart attack if my hand touched one of their tough, sticky webs because their webs are pretty durable. And then I'd see those spiky babies and just like imagining it breaking open and just engulfing my body in tiny spiders. I feel like that must be a common fear of a lot of kids in the area where I grew up whose chore was to take out those trash cans. It was terrifying. We also used to have black widow hunts with my dad where at nighttime we'd look around our alleyway and backyard with a flashlight and try to catch and squash black widows. Looking back at it now, I kind of feel sad because I don't really condone killing bugs just because you share the same space with them, even if you are afraid of them. But he was afraid that they would bite our dogs and possibly hurt us. So I get it. It was a daddy protecting his young, just like a lot of animals do in the animal kingdom. Now they do have a special place in my heart because they do serve as a, a memory from my childhood, even though it's a scary one. So aside from the brown widow, the other widow spider that cannibalizes their male counterparts is the Australian redback. In both of these species, it almost seems like the male wants to get eaten. He will literally offer his abdomen to the soon-to-be mama shortly after doing the deed. Like, hey, are you hungry after all that baby making? Here is my body. <laughs> but interestingly enough, when it comes to the Australian redback, I happened upon a study published in the journal Biology Letters that found some males of the species have a trick up their sleeve, or their many sleeves, to avoid being eaten. These tricky buggers will purposefully mate with immature females. These females are new to the dating game, and chances are they haven't gained the partner-eating experience just yet. This means the male can do the deed and then jet out before becoming the spiderweb equivalent to a cotton candy snack. And you'd think, immature females? Why would the males even bother? Can they even get pregnant with his babies and spread his genes? Good question. And the answer is yes. The cool thing about our eight-legged female friend is that even though they're not mature enough to conceive immediately, the sperm can be stored in their two sperm storage organs. These organs are called spermatheca, and they can store sperm until the female reaches adulthood. These baby makers can then be used to fertilize eggs, sometimes multiple batches on a later date of their choosing. And the sperm held in these storage sacks can be stored for quite a while, up to two years. The added bonus is that the male spider can now go on to find another luggy lady to fertilize. Though it's easier said than done. 2002 report by Andrade, the majority of redback males die without finding a potential mate in nature. That's around 80%. That's a lot of males that end up being single for their entire life. One of the reasons a male may instead choose to sacrifice himself to the female after mating is because of just that. The chances of him finding another lady in this big old world are relatively slim. He has a better chance of spreading his genes if he occupies the time of the female, of his soon-to-be offspring. That, and if she's well-fed, the babies have a much better chance of thriving. 
And that's probably why 65% of matings usually do end up with the male being eaten. Some male redbacks have even been observed doing a sort of somersault during copulation that consists of a sort of twisting the abdomen into the female's fangs, seemingly to ensure they are sacrificed to their beloved. For these Romeos, finding a Juliet can be tricky, and seeing that being eaten can increase their chances of paternity with well-nourished eggs, the sacrifice seems to be worth the risk, especially if females are hard to come by. This begs the question, though. If something like a garden feels like a ginormous jungle to a male spider, no bigger than a grain of rice, how can he find his lady love to begin with? Do the lucky fellas just happen to walk across their path? To find a mate, female widow spiders do what any other lonesome heart does. They share their status on the web. Their actual web, though, not the interwebs. When a female is ready to mingle, she laces her silk with pheromones to attract a male. These chemicals give out a lot of information, from her mating history, health, and even how hungry she is. It's like, hey honey, come over for a good time and bring home a snack, aka your body. The male widow doesn't want any competition once he answers the Lonely Hearts ad. To avoid any other males picking up on his lady's web scent, he will do something called web deconstruction. This is when a male widow starts disassembling a female's web shortly after his arrival. He does this one strand of silk at a time, bundling it up and then spinning his own silk around it. Some researchers think they do this to mask the female's signaling scent with their own chemicals. It's like he's literally changing her Facebook status from single to in a relationship, or maybe the equivalent of a do not disturb hotel sign. Another animal that also has a lot of appendages that has been known to eat its lover is the octopus, believe it or not. It's not exactly uncommon for octopus to eat each other when there's a lack of food floating around the ocean, but uh, eating each other after mating is a phenomenon that hasn't really been observed a lot in nature, especially because octopus are hard enough to observe as it is. But they have been observed doing it. A 2014 article titled Female Octopus Strangles Mate Then Eats Him shows that sexual cannibalism isn't out of the question when it comes to our 16-armed friend. And yes, I said strangled. If there ever was an animal fit for strangling, I suppose it would be the octopus with all of those sticky arms. It seems like they were literally made for the job. But since an octopus doesn't have a neck to speak of, Strangling for this species is more of a wrapping around the male's mantle and blocking his funnel kind of strangle. The funnel in an octopus is kind of like the equivalent to a snorkel for a scuba diver. It's where the breathing happens. And unable to use his funnel, the male is stopped from being able to flow fresh, oxygen-rich water over his gills that enables him to breathe. For the unfortunate octopus male observed in the paper, after mating for about 15 minutes or so, the female lunged at him, and after a flurry of asphyxiation moves with her tentacles, she dragged his lifeless body to her den to consume. Now, octopus males usually have a way to keep a safe distance from females during mating. They have something called a hectoclotus, which is a specialized arm that carries the male's sperm to the female. Males will sneak this arm over to the female's mantle, where he will transfer his seed. The female will then store his baby makers to fertilize her eggs later. 
Most species of octopus males have an extra-long hectoclotus that prevents them from being in arm's reach of the female. This way, they can jet off before things get dangerous. But the male in our story was unfortunately smaller than the female. Which by no means is unusual when it comes to mating in the wild, but it did mean that she had a leg up, or legs up, on the competition. Despite his grim fate, the deed was done before the female decided to have him for dinner, so he may have succeeded in being the father to her babies after all. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. From lovers eating the hearts of their mates, along with all their other organs, to parasites creating zombies with a craving for flesh. What if I told you there was a real-life parasite that once it entered its host, turned it into a ravenous interspecies munching cannibal? You'd be thinking, zombies exist. Oh no, it may jump to humans. Will it infect humans? In which case, my reply is, hold your dang horses. But yes, zombies do indeed exist, just not with our species. Yet. And I know, I know, I'm shouting out a lot of my past episodes, but I did make an episode about real-life zombies that is absolutely fascinating, so go check that out after this episode, if you haven't already. But back to the story of this episode, in the case of this zombie infestation, the victims of the tiny parasite are named Plysophora malari, and they are thankfully not humans, but freshwater shrimp in Northern Ireland. Now, admittedly, these shrimp already had a knack for picking up their young in clawfuls and eating them like popcorn, but the parasites are responsible for turning their cannibalism up a few notches. A study on the phenomena conducted by researchers from the University of Leeds, Queen's University of Belfast, and Stellenbosch University in South Africa noticed that infested shrimp attacked juvenile shrimp much more often and quicker than did their uninfected counterparts. And no, it isn't because they infected their brains and gave them a craving for a shrimp cocktail. The teeny tiny parasites instead reside in the shrimp's muscles. And these parasites are super tiny, like no bigger than a red blood cell tiny. And millions of them can embed themselves in their host's muscles. These parasites suck up nutrients from their host shrimp, meaning the shrimp has an ever-increasing demand for food and must feed itself or it risks starvation. And since they're hitching a ride in the shrimp's muscles, it's much more difficult for the shrimp to catch the prey it needs to satiate the parasite's appetite. I imagine it's like trying to play tennis with arm floaties on. Not that successful. With this handicap, the shrimp is much slower, 
and needs easy pickings if it's going to eat at all. And nothing is easier than a defenseless little baby shrimp. Thus, the cannibalism ensues. The study suggests that cannibalism is the only way for the sick, infected shrimp to survive. And even more interesting, uninfected shrimp seem to be able to pick up on the fact that their comrades are infected. They seemingly avoid cannibalizing infected juveniles and also the carcasses of infected adults. So at least they have the sense not to get infected themselves. From zombie parasites to vampire crickets, the females of the sagebrush cricket species have a thirst for blood, or at least for something called hemolymph, which is the cricket's equivalent to blood. During copulation, the male sagebrush cricket will allow the female to bite down on his wings. These wounds cause their precious hemolymph to ooze out, and it is then ingested by the females. These wounds aren't fatal, and only a portion of the male's wings are nibbled on. But the female's hunger for her male's wings does leave him with less, uh, resources to provide for another future female mating partner. Because of this, virgin males are preferred as partners. Because, you know, they look more delicious, I suppose. A study found in Behavioral Ecology titled Female Remating Propensity Contingent on Sexual Cannibalism in Sagebrush Crickets, that's a mouthful to say, showed that females were far more reluctant to mount males whose wings had been surgically removed, meaning they much preferred a copulation if it's accompanied by a snack. And honestly, I can't blame them. All right, so we covered zombies and vampires. Now, on to the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of the animal cannibal world. This next species, just like the deranged doctor, goes through an actual monstrous metamorphosis to become much better at accomplishing the cannibalistic task. Enter the tiger salamander. Now, this salamander isn't necessarily born with the physical characteristics to make it cannibal capable. In fact, a tiger salamander may never have to resort to cannibalism at all. It's only when the pressure of their environment calls for it that a tiger salamander will go through a dramatic shapeshift to level up on its prey. And in this case, the prey is another tiger salamander. This evolution consists of their heads and jaws getting bigger in proportion to their bodies, and something called their vomerine teeth becoming more pronounced. Vomerine teeth may be called teeth, but they're not exactly for chewing. They're small projections on the roof of an amphibian's mouth to help hold their prey in place to swallow it whole. Now, if there's enough food in their watery habitat, these salamanders have no need for these physical changes. But stress, crowding, and nutrient-poor environments are all it takes to trigger cannibal morphs, what they're commonly called, and signs of this change show up in early larval stages of development. Even though a salamander morphs to be this way, it may not maintain these attributes forever and can lose these cannibal morphs if they transition to a new, spacious environment with plenty of food. Once they return to their typical diet, there's no need for all the extra bells and whistles. Tiger salamanders aren't the only ones who go through the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type cannibal morph. Amphibians like other salamanders and frogs are prone to these environmentally triggered morphs as well. Hey, it's a frog-eat-frog -frog world out there. We're just all living in it. On this episode so far, we've talked a lot about the wild world of animals and how environmental changes can be all it takes to trigger an inner cannibal. But what about our cute little pets? 
Surely, staying in a comfy house and being fed a predictable daily meal, sometimes even twice a day, would ensure such savagery stays at bay. Wrong. In fact, the conditions we set up for our pets could be the very thing that triggers cannibalism just because it's so unnatural. Take the goldfish, for example. In their natural habitat, they are not aggressive and show no signs of being predatory. But bring them indoors and confine them in a tank, and you have a whole different kind of bowl game. You see, goldfish may not be aggressive, but they are territorial. And without a whole pond to wander about to keep a comfy distance from one another, overcrowding in a fishbowl can trigger a territorial battle, which inevitably leads to cannibalism. Because after a long battle to the death, who can waste a fishy meal? Another group of lovable animals that are no stranger to cannibalism, especially infanticide, are rodents. And these little furry friends include our mini cage-bound critters, like rats, mice, guinea pigs, and hamsters. And you know, it's fair to say that this could be due to the fact that their babies kind of look like pink jelly beans. The mouse is like, ooh dang, that was a baby? An example can be seen in mother hamsters. If a female hamster gives birth and she feels she has too many babies in one litter, she may become overwhelmed, fearing that she couldn't possibly cater to them all. In this case, it's not uncommon for her to snack on a few to obtain some much-needed protein so the others can have a better chance at thriving. This happens both in the wild and with domestic hamsters, but there are some pet-specific reasons why a rodent's litter could potentially face this grim fate. One could be a foreign smell on the pups that confuses the female. I had two dwarf hamsters growing up, and when the pet store owner mistakenly sold us a male-female pair instead of a female pair, one thing led to another and we had a cluster of fresh nude babies in under a month. Naturally, as a third grader, I wanted to hold all things baby. But alas, my mom refused to let me because she said our, quote, human smell would make the mom abandon her new litter. And honestly, I'm glad I was stopped because hamsters have been known to do much more than ignore their babies after foreign smells are detected, aka cannibalism. I think I've said the word cannibalism more times than I ever have in my entire life in like these past 40 minutes. Okay, we can play a game. Every time I say cannibalism, do as a little mom hamster would do and eat a pink jelly bean. If you at home are like, hey, I have pet hamsters and they have babies, but I need to clean their cage and I don't want the mom to eat her babies, what do I do? You'll be glad to know that there is a possible way to accomplish the task of cleaning a cage without creating a horse scene in your home fit for a scream thriller. First, get some rubber gloves. Put those suckers on. Then rub your gloved hands in the hamster's bedding to pick up the smell. Then pick up the whole nest, jelly beans included, to transfer to a safe spot while freshening up the cage. Though this does seem to help, the more I research pet rodents, the more I realize that pretty much anything could set them off to go on a baby-eating spree. Stressors could include noise, vibrations, bright light, and even temperature. Lucky for us, our dwarf hamster family never munched on the wee ones, but my dad had also built this little hamster house out of wood that seemed to put our furry pets at ease and provide a sense of security. Luckily, we never had to see any sort of baby eating, though I am sad to say despite this, our hamsters did suffer a premature death 
And it's a sad story. One day, an entrance to our cage broke, so we tried to seal the hamsters up in the bathroom until we could fix it. But unbeknownst to us, that night, the whole family of hamsters managed to squeeze through the crack underneath the bathroom door. And at this point, the once pink babies had grown up to be adventurous teens, and they were eager to explore new environments. This is where things got real sad. Our super hyper Jack Russell noticed the escaped hamsters. When we woke up the next morning, well, you can pretty much guess what we found. My sister was actually so upset she had to skip a few days of school. And I actually just recently asked her if she remembered the names of our late dwarf hamsters, and the only one we could remember was Buttercup. So RIP Buttercup and family, gone too soon. It's not only beloved family rodents that get the cannibalistic urge. Researchers often run into the problem of infanticide when they breed mice for lab experiments. It's said to be so common when breeding lab mice that parents eating their young tends to be overlooked and seen as normal. In a lab setting, there are many of what are known as strains of mice that are bred for experiments, and some are known to be much more cannibalistic than others, such as C57BL-6 and BALB-C. Not that you in any way will recognize or even remember strains of lab mice, but there you go. New mice mamas from these strains specifically will often eat their first litter due to lack of experience and also consume any diseased or abnormal or defected infants. In an attempt to avoid this, researchers feed their mice a sort of protein gel that studies have shown to lessen the chance of baby munching. It's called Diet Gel 76A, which sounds delicious. Anyway, another method to help reduce an infanticide problem is to create enrichment activities for the mice, such as hiding sunflower seeds about the cage so they can forage for little snacks, which sounds a lot more fun than a lab-made protein jelly sandwich. But I don't know. I've never tried Diet Gel 76A, so I could be missing out. So, domesticated rodents can be pushed to cannibalize in some very unnatural ways, or at least more than they usually do, but this next story is a crazy example of cannibalism as a means of survival. Have you ever heard of the cannibal ant colony? No? It really does have the makings of a killer horror movie. The story is as follows. A million or so ants get trapped in an abandoned Soviet bunker in western Poland. They had gotten stuck there by falling through a ventilation pipe, which resulted in them getting lost inside of the bunker with no means of escape or food. Over the years, because yes, they were there for years, they had no choice but to adapt to their meager conditions. They developed a queenless colony, and they even put together a makeshift ant mound from the dirt they managed to find around in the bunker. Now, when it came to food, they did what they had to do to survive. Out of the two million corpses found in the bunker by researchers when it was discovered, Nearly 93 had evidence of bite marks and puncture holes, consistent with the markings of being munched on by fellow ants. And even though they couldn't reproduce, there was still a steady flow of other unfortunate workers who had suffered the same fate as those before them. They had also fallen through the ventilation pipe and then joined the others in the stranded cannibal worker colony. But don't worry, this story does have a somewhat happy ending. The researchers made sure to set up a wooden plank that allowed the surviving ants to escape their grim conditions. And when they returned a few months later, 
they found that most of the ants had found their freedom and made their way out of the cannibal colony for good. All right, that wraps up this week's episode. You know, I'm glad I ended this episode on a lighter note. Cannibalism can be some pretty heavy stuff, especially when it comes to cute baby animals. But like I said in the beginning of this episode, nature is unforgiving. Cannibalism is a vital part of nature and occurs in every major animal group. Cannibalism may seem like a rare, out-of-place phenomenon, but in fact, it's so commonplace out in the wild that researchers often wonder why more species haven't resorted to the practice. Thank you all for listening. If you could review this episode and let me know what you think about all the cannibal madness, that would be absolutely wonderful. I really do love hearing everything you have to say about the podcast. And also, make sure to subscribe to Little Curiosities because you wouldn't want to miss an equally disturbing future episode, right? Also, hey, while you're at it, please share this episode with anybody you think who would be interested in learning more about the world of cannibalism or just animals in general and the really odd things we are up to here at Little Curiosities. Again, this is a new podcast, so sharing and doing anything you can to help spread the word and get this podcast out there really does mean so much to us. So thank you for your support. Looking forward to next week when we're going to be bringing yet another crazy topic up. Like always, thank you so much for listening. Ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. I'm Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Mimi Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast.